It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. And we, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. 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 Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the Mic'd Up Podcast, a low country-based, unapologetic podcast hosted by yours truly, Mika Gadsden. In this episode of Mic'd Up, um, this is actually going to be probably a common practice here in this space. Um, there are some conversations that I initiate over on Twitch, and if you don't know, I live stream every Monday through Friday, starting at 7.30 a.m. I'm, you know, I'm giving you an alternative to your early everyday morning uh, talk news talk show. Uh, yeah, so I live stream every weekday morning at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Twitch. And last week, uh, I started a conversation uh, about green infrastructure versus gray infrastructure. Um, I'll link it in the show notes of this uh, of this episode. And so what I wanted to do is leverage um, the expertise in my immediate circle. And so I'm bringing on um, a fellow organizer and friend of mine, Taylor. Taylor is a fellow organizer with me and the Friends of Gasden Creek. And I think that this conversation that both she and I have is extraordinarily, um, it's timely, it's important, especially if you reside in a coastal city like we do here in Charleston, South Carolina. And so I want you to check out this conversation between uh, Taylor and I. I hope you find it to be helpful, useful as you make distinctions between gray infrastructure and green infrastructure and some solutions that we could use here um, here in Charleston. I'll also link some important um, news articles and whatnot uh, that went into the live stream. So check out the show notes for more information. But uh, without further ado, here's my conversation with my girl, Taylor. All my Gullah Geechee people, I'm going to say peace out right here, but y'all keep listening. Keep listening. Well, hello, Taylor. It's so great for you to join me on Mic'd Up. I am excited to introduce you to all of our listeners. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for people to get to know you and your work. So if you wouldn't mind, could you just introduce yourself by saying your name and your occupation or field of study? Yes. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. I've been a listener, so it's exciting to now be on the other side. <laughs> um, my name is Taylor Schenker. I um, was formerly an urban designer at a landscape and urban design firm based in Charleston, and I will soon be starting work as an analyst uh, with a economics firm called Urban3. They d- focus on the intersection of economics and urban design and analyzing different data, creating maps and infographics, and giving that information to mainly like city planners, um, city council members, and different people in different cities across the world to help them make better decisions for their cities and for their citizens. So mm-hmm. super excited to get started about in that work, um, but also really passionate about urban design and the work that I've been doing up until then. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. So, well, is, that, is that firm, is it uh, based here in the low country or is it somewhere else? It's actually based in Asheville, North Carolina, and I should say I also, my background um, educationally, I did, um, my undergrad was in economics with a minor in architecture, Hmm. and then I got my master's in resilient urban design. So this will kind of combine the two um, and 
Both were from Clemson University. My master's was at the Clemson Design Center based in Charleston, and I now teach um, a small course there as well. So, oh, okay. Kind of full circle in the low country. It's so impressive. Like, um, for those who don't know, also Taylor is a part of the Friends of Gadsden Creek Collective. And so um, it's great to organize with, with you, Taylor, with that issue, with that group. But to know just how amazing <laughs> your skill set is, um, learning more and more every day. I knew what you did. I think I knew the broad strokes, but like um, hearing your transition and what you're going to be entering into, and also your. I never asked you about your um your your time at Clemson, so it was great. It's good to hear more about that. Um, your bona fides are impressive. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm always yeah. working to learn more about things, so. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask this question um, before I ask the, the, the next question is more about like specifics of what you're doing and everything. I wanted to ask like um, how, I guess, how important was it for you or is it for you to like incorporate like a level of like social consciousness and what you do professionally nine to five? Like, was that important in terms of like when you seek a job or, or the role that you'll be fulfilling in your new job? It's really important to me. And that's, I think, something that I learned when I was in school. I took some time to kind of study different things and learn under different people. I did a ton of different internships. I did a semester in Washington, D.C. because I wanted to learn about policy. I spent a summer interning in Panama, living in the jungle with a community um, that was, or a group that was building a sustainable community from scratch. And I did my architecture minor in Genoa. And then when I was on campus was working every semester to be able to pay for all of this myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, from that just got so much work experience, but I also found that I was so much more connected to and driven by the work that had meaning behind it. And that was something that I figured out was going to be super important just for me personally moving forward. And, you know, businesses have to make money and be profitable in order to exist and pay people. And, you know, not every single project may light um, you up. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there's, I do think that you can make a profitable business and still be socially conscious. And I'm really excited about um, how that kind of mindset has shaped this new firm urban three that I'll be joining in November. So, yeah, yeah I think that's, um, that's the, that's the balancing act. especially once you leave undergrad or graduate school is um, the, the balancing act is, um, you know, finding perhaps a job that also aligns with your values, but also making, you know, pursuing your passion, whether it's social you know, social justice or anything like that, pursuing your passion, how do you make it sustainable? Um, and sometimes it's um, it's a balancing act, but it sounds like, um, it sounds like you found some place where, you know, you can, the two can meet, you know, your passion and, and your, in your profession. I, I wanted to ask another question and Taylor, I know I'm probably throwing you some other questions, but <laughs> that outside That's of our- fine. I love it. Yeah, yeah. But I wanted to ask more because how I met you was through your, your art and, um, like you were, you were able to take certain statistics and make them visually impactful. And I wanted yeah. to know, you said you, in undergrad, it was, your major was economics and then architecture was your, was that, did I get it right? Or 
was yeah. a minor. Was your minor. So were you always artistically inclined? Like, how did you know that you wanted to take like statistics or metrics and turn them into like infographics? Um, how did I know? I think it, to answer a couple of your questions. So yes, I've always been creative. Um, but I've also always kind of had strength in math. And so I've struggled my whole life kind of with being equally, you know, left and right brained, um, whereas most people kind of tend to lean one way or the other towards like being more creative or being more data driven. Um, and so I originally went to school for engineering because, you know, when you're good at math and physics in high school, that's the only thing that you think exists and then discovered economics in college. And as much as I loved, because through economics, you can study any problem and you can really find the root of it, whether it's social, environmental, um, uh, like financial, you can really study anything. And I, but I got frustrated when we were learning all these really interesting things and kind of root causes of different issues that are happening in the world around us, but we weren't doing anything about it. And that was what led me to get my master's in resilient urban design, because I wanted to be able to study all these different issues and then use that information to actually make a positive change in people's lives. And through doing uh, my master's in urban design, which was much more creative, and then working in the you know creative profession, I found that there was kind of um, there was a real disconnect between the people who crunch the numbers and understand all the data and the money side of things in the world, and the people who are designing it, and that kind of economic illiteracy that a lot of designers have stops them from one designing a place that takes all people into consideration, regardless of, you know, what they as themselves, you know, have as far as a body race, gender, uh, you know, like disabled or not disabled, um, like kind of what their um, perspective is. And it also stops them from being able to fight for better design by being able to say, hey, you're going to get a better return on your property if you, you know, create X, Y, and Z. Or if you create a great outdoor space for your employees to hang out at lunch, then they're going to be happier and they're going to, you know, be more efficient and have a better work product. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted to be able to articulate a lot of those numbers and you know, different budgets and different things. Like I started off diving into the city of Charleston budget and visualizing some of that because that's something that the average person just isn't going to take the time to really dive into a budget. It's kind of boring, but if you can make it into something that's interesting and visual, then a lot more people are going to be able to digest it and learn from it. Did you do that for the city or is that something separate? I just did that on my own. Um, I was trying to figure out a way that I could use my skills to kind of help the different social movements that were going on, particularly last summer around Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And just like looking at the way that our city functions and how much money we were spending on the police department versus these community kind of elements. And, um, 
I know one of the things you wanted to talk about was different projects I've worked on. Mm -hmm. And one of the projects was the city of Charleston parks and recreation master plan as part of the city's uh, 2020 comprehensive plan. Mm -hmm. And when we did that research because of COVID, we couldn't have just giant meetings, which one are inaccessible to people who work after like, or uh, they work until six or seven because usually our meetings are like right after work. It's inaccessible to anybody who doesn't have childcare. It's inaccessible to people who, you know, don't have a car, can't get to the location, et cetera. And so a lot of times you get the same sort of people turning out to those events. Well, because we couldn't have large gatherings because of COVID, we decided to go out into the parks and be able to talk to people using them. And we just walked up to random people and started surveying them, asked them questions about the park. Obviously, you know, not everybody wanted to talk to us, but of the people that did, we got a much more like diverse feedback. Um, we got, you know, more honest answers from the people that were actually using the parks and were able to use that data to then, you know, present it to the city. And what we found was that the parks where they had dedicated staff who had, you know, been there many years who really were fighting and advocating for their those spaces, those were the ones who had a better sense of community. Those are the ones where the parents felt safe sending their kids, even though they're at home like working or cooking dinner or doing what whatnot. Um and so that made a huge difference. And I think that was what really pushed me to be able to show people like, hey, we're not spending nearly enough on these community resources that are actually making a difference in people's lives that are actually, you know, entertaining kids after school and helping them with their homework so that they have a better outcome in life that are, you know, keeping teenagers busy and um, stopping them from like getting into petty theft and different things like that, that teenagers do because they're right. bored and they don't understand risk. Like, right. um, and you know, all these different kind of like community elements that are part of our community development, um, you know, part of the city, but isn't getting nearly as much funding as our police force. And so it's kind of like the police, at least as far as I see it, is more reactive, whereas like these community groups and uh, programs are more proactive about these different issues and that's kind of where we need to balance our funding so that was a super long answer no that was very um, thoughtful so I apologize no I don't apologize but, I think I learned a, a, it was really it was really I'm happy that you actually took that time to explain that um, because I think it shows your thought process uh, as you you know either work with the city or other entities it shows your thought process it makes me um, want to ask you this next question. Do you find yourself, um, you know, being like, do you feel like others approach the work when it comes to city planning or, or you know, maybe helping to create a vision for this city? Do you think you were alone in the way you approach some of these solutions um, to urban planning? You know, I mean, that's difficult to say just mm -hmm. because I've been working with all these people for two three years yeah. um and I think everyone has or for the most part like people have really good intentions yeah. I think I you know I can't speak for actual city employees because I've met I yeah. haven't worked for the actual city I interned with the city of North Charleston during my uh during grad school 
but I do think it's really challenging. They're mostly understaffed, I think, which then leads them to not have time to innovate. And there's a kind of tendency sometimes to just do things the way that they've always been done. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, you I know, think, I think that's universal too. like, regardless, I think a lot of people, yeah. And I'm not trying to put you in a position to, yeah. like, you know, talk, talk in a disparaging way about former colleagues. I just wanted to know, like, did you find yourself in the minority when it comes to like pri- priorities or how you approach the work? But yeah. Yeah. I, I it's, I always came into the idea with, or I always came into my work with the idea that I didn't necessarily think that I'd live in Charleston forever. Mm-hmm. And when I go to a lot of meetings or had gone to a lot of meetings at the city, I was often the youngest person in the room by at least 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so you know, when we're talking about climate, when we're talking about future projections, my outlook on life is really different from somebody who's in a position of power, who worked their way to the top of their department, and who's in their 50s, or even like late 40s or 60s or whatever. And so I always tried to kind of um, ask those tough questions and not be afraid of those, um, you know, yeah, to not be afraid to kind of push the group. And I think that has, that mindset started out as, okay, you know, this, I think this is the right thing to do. I think I'm asking these questions on behalf or, you know, for people who aren't able to be in this room, because I have the privilege to be here. And I recognize that and I want to use that opportunity to do as much good as possible. And if that means that I start ask, you know, asking by asking these questions or um, trying to encourage us to like look in, into different opportunities and different things like that, if that becomes controversial in a way that stops me from having a job and being able to work in this city, then okay, I didn't plan here to live here forever anyway. Mm. And that has kind of always pushed me to work really hard and not be afraid of the potential backlash of speaking out when it's the right thing to do. Yeah, I think- But it's hard. (laughs) It is difficult. And I know that as someone who pushes people and systems pretty hard, I always always want to tell people or remind them that I know what I'm doing is not for everyone, Um, nor do I have an expectation that everyone shows up and and (laughs) is as disruptive as I tend to be. But- um, it's great to hear folks be a little bit more subversive. And I mean that in a positive, you know, in the positive context, like, you know, like you said, you're in these rooms, you understand your age sets you apart. You also understand your, your privilege. Um, and so you're in those rooms and you're making certain calculations and, and figuring out how you can advocate. So I think that that's an, that's an important step for most people. Um, so if you don't want to be as loud and as, as obnoxious as I am, <laughs> you can definitely try other, other ways. So you, I wanted to, I wanted to, to pivot a little bit to the topic of green infrastructure because um, I talked about it uh, on the live stream on the Twitch live stream Monday morning, um, and I wanted to pivot to you because I know again um, we organized together with Friends of Gas and Creek, and you've leveraged your your um, your acumen. You le- you leverage your skills 
to help advance our issues. Um, but something that's come up and become a topic in Charleston, especially with the announcement of um, the construction of a seawall to help with storm surge and flooding in Charleston on the peninsula. I wanted to ask your opinions about green infrastructure just in general. And then I don't want to ask you some more questions about what that could look like for Charleston specifically. But but how do you respond to the topic of green infrastructure? I think, you know, in my experience, green infrastructure is should always be the first stop. Um, personally, I think it's the best option, um, and I would define green infrastructure as trying to mimic um, nature's, you know, basic processes in order to manipulate, whether it be land or water or whatever, around human-made points um humans we've messed up our environment there's many areas (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean there's so many areas where we'll never be able to go back to what it naturally looked like or what nature would have done without us existing here and that being said you know as sea levels rise we're going to need to make space for marsh migration to come inland um, for those ecosystems to exist. And those ecosystems will help, uh, you know, serve as a barrier. They will also provide food for us and um, different things like that. Whereas, you know, a drainage pipe doesn't do as much for the natural environment and native flora and fauna as a bioswale does. That being said, like there's different, you know, capacities of each and um, I'm not going to try to speak like I'm a stormwater engineer. I know that there's, you know, bioswales won't necessarily hold as much water as like underground storage tanks and different things like that, depending on how they're designed. Um, underwater storage tanks aren't possible in Charleston because of the, the groundwater is too high. But I do think that they provide so many additional benefits beyond just whatever, like specific infrastructure purpose that they're trying to provide. Um, that green infrastructure is definitely the better option whenever possible. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that leads me to the the second question that I kind of referenced a minute ago. So what could that look like for Charleston in your in your opinion? Like where could we use more flora and fauna as opposed to concrete and gray infrastructure? Where where do you see the possibilities of green infrastructure just blossoming to be corny? (laughs) What do you see? I mean, is it like that? Is it corny to also say everywhere? Um, no, no, I wanted this to look like Fern Gully. So I don't know if that's a that's a dated animation reference, but I, but yeah, I wanted to look very green here. But yeah. That's okay. I mean, there's so many different things. I mean, just like for people's driveways, if you have like a concrete or a paved driveway, if you can replace that with either permeable pavers or some sort of permeable surface like gravel. Um, if you have a yard, instead of just having a lawn, which doesn't soak up too much water and isn't great for the environment, replacing that with plants that will soak up more water. Um, one of the most frustrating things that we 
deal with or I dealt with when working on landscape architecture projects is when people want to cut down a tree in their yard to make room for some sort of like small water retention area. Stormwater is a huge issue for people in Charleston. Um, And it's like, okay, well, we can do as much as you want, but that tree soaks up a ton of water. And Mm. we may actually net out um, where, uh, you know, it may make more sense for you to just keep it. And so like things like bioswales instead of ditches, um, making room for marsh migration on the coast as sea levels rise and that kind of pushes inland. Um, gosh, what else? Just yeah. in every instance, yeah. it's really, it's just going to be small changes it's kind of corny but it really is like every droplet counts yeah um when it comes to dealing with specifically water issues which is a big part of gadsden green but you know water's gonna go where water has always gone we see this a ton on the peninsula with flooding if you map the flooding and you look at it on a map of um current day charleston and then next to it you look at a map of historic charleston when creeks ran up through the peninsula, oftentimes the flooding happens in the exact same place. Mm. And water's just trying to go where it's always gone instead of fighting it around every corner. When we can make space for it to exist, that's going to be a far more sustainable option. Mm. So, yeah, working with nature as opposed to just filling and erecting walls. Um, I don't know how much you were able to to read um, of, of Josh Robinson's, um, of, of Robinson Design Engineers. I don't know if you're able to read his op-ed or at least maybe, you know, peruse it, but, um, you know, he, he talks about like, he doesn't really believe that the seawall is the solution. Um, I, and I don't want to take you out of your discipline either, but I want to just ask you your, um, you know, your thoughts on, on the seawall or any, or, or anything regarding that conversation, because it is a hot topic here in Charleston. Yes. So I I just wanted to get your thoughts on the seawall and, and um, didn't know if you shared similar sentiments to, to not just Joshua Robinson, but a whole host of folks that we are currently in community with any thoughts. I mean, yes. uh, So many so many it's hard to like it's hard to know where to start so I think first I should just say like I so I was a grad student when Charleston went through the Dutch dialogues process I was one of the lead students um on that project got to speak at a press conference and be in different groups um one of which was the MUS or the uh healthcare um downtown medical district group and also the other downtown group and that project then led to the city including a water impact and land use assessment as part of their 2020 comprehensive plan which looked at the layers of the city which included the different regions all the watersheds, breakdown of the soil types, the building typologies, and then zoning, uh, marsh migration, sea level rise, all these different issues. Um, And basically where it makes sense to build, where it makes sense to add more, where we need to be stricter, 
where we need to raise houses, where we need to retreat houses, where we need to aim development for, because it's high ground and it's going to stay high ground, where we need to protect existing forests and vegetation that already are soaking up tons of water. Um, So we did this super complex um, layered analysis. I was on that team as part of my work at Circulus, as well as Joshua Robinson with uh, Robinson Design Engineers. Mm -hmm. So I've worked really closely with him. He is great. Yeah. And I do agree with him that the Army Corps' plan for Charleston is worse worse than doing nothing at all. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, I feel bad criticizing it because I'm not a stormwater engineer. But I will say my biggest issue with it is that this is the Army Corps' plan to deal with storm surge. Mm. And storm surge is the only water issue that they looked at. Right. And they determined that this is the best way to solve storm surge. Mm. Great. But the problem with that is that storm surge isn't the only water challenge that Charleston faces. That's right. Yeah. And Charleston faces storm surge, rain bombs, regular precipitation. We're facing sea level rise. Uh, We face hurricanes. We face tornadoes. Uh, earthquakes. Earthquakes. We haven't had some of those for a while, but like (laughs) fires, like we literally. I think the only real natural disaster that we don't face is like we're not near a site or no, we because we do have earthquakes. So like, yeah, we do. We do. There's and- one. There's only one thing that we're like we don't deal with, and I'm blanking on what it is. But basically, our water challenges are so much more complicated than just storm surge, mm-hmm. and this wall while it will help with storm surge, which is can be devastating, don't get me wrong, it's going it could make a lot of those other issues way worse. Yeah. And Charleston's always been a low city built on a lot of fill and we have a really high water table, which means that Basically, the water that lives underground lives a lot closer to the surface. And so when you build a wall around a city, you are eliminating the ability for the city, for that water when it rains or whatever, to drain with the tides. So right now, rain falls, it usually floods the city, but it drains out when the tide is low and, you know, water will always go down. So it goes down out to the sea when tides low. Um, And when you build a wall, it cuts off that tidal capability. Um, And so then when water does fall within this bowl that you've essentially created, you Mm -hmm. have to pump it out over the wall. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is that when you're pumping you're not necessarily separating like rainwater from groundwater. And that's how you get a lot of more subsidization than we have now. So basically the ground sink. So that's how New Orleans ended up Mm. being like whatever, you know, 12 or 20 feet below sea level or whatever they're at right now is because they like sucked all the water out of the ground. 
Charleston's built on landfill, so that's right. even more separate, right? Less compact than like regular soil, and so it like the city where in the areas where there are buildings and things built on a landfill, those are already sinking at up to like an inch per year, which is crazy. That is, that's um, mind-blowing. That is mind. Yeah, like it's so crazy, and so for those areas, like this is only going to speed up that process. So if you live somewhere where like your house is built on piles or something like that, where it's basically imagine like a really long stick, like a chopstick stuck Mm. in the ground, your house is on like, there's a bunch of them, then your house is built on top of them, then you're not going to sink, but the ground around you is. Mm. Um, And then that puts the city at even more risk because if you have storm surge that goes over that wall, then you're basically creating a cereal bowl on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what really worries me about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this city will always worry about like aesthetic things as far mm-hmm. as like not wanting just a concrete wall, wanting to beautify it, make it natural like grass berms or have landscaping and have pathways on top of it. I mean, if they created a public pathway along the whole top, it'd be a great public amenity. I'm not going to lie and say it wouldn't. Right. But I think it also just like creates other challenges. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it might feel like an awkward place to stop, but um, I want to say thank you, um, Taylor, for sharing your thoughts. And for those who are interested in learning more about green infrastructure, um, uh, Taylor and I talked about an article that well, we talked about um, what is Kate Orff? Is she a scientist? I forgot her title. Um, She's actually a landscape architect. Right. So, so right. So, I'm going to include in, in the show notes of this episode the uh, New Yorker piece that um, profiles Kate Orff and her. Uh, I guess she's making a case for green infrastructure as as a solution to the climate crisis. And I'm going to include a couple of other links, links including um, Josh Robinson of RDE, including his op-ed that was in the Post and Courier. So folks can, um, can learn more about green infrastructure and also the solutions that the city is putting forth. Also, I want to encourage listeners, um, like I said, like three times already, uh, Taylor and I are both um, organizers organizers with the Friends of Gadsden Creek. And so that information on how you can get involved, um, how you can help um, help advance our issues, that information will be in the show notes as well. But Taylor, thank you so much for your time and just sharing so much of yourself and your expertise. I really appreciate you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's exciting <laughs> to be involved. No, thank you. Okay. <laughs>